we were watching film one time in training camp. We needed to bring up a linebacker. Joe said, hey, guys, I got this linebacker. I think I found a guy that would be a good fit. He said, let, let me throw him up there. And we watched him. We all agreed he was pretty good. We said, does anybody else have any guys? And we each threw out two or three names. We watched him. And one of the guys that someone else brought up, he goes, that's the guy. He goes, that guy's better than my guy. And one, and the guy who's linebacker was said, oh, you sure you're okay going with my guy? He goes, if we start choosing players based on whose guy they are and not them being our guy, he goes, we may as well start packing our bags because we ain't going to beat them. He goes, we got to find our guy, not my guy, not your guy. It's got to be our guy. We have to find the best player that can help our team. Do I really require a guy with my hand? Hello and welcome back or welcome to the Up Close in Personnel podcast with Alex Brown. I'm your host, Alex Brown. Thank you for tuning into the show. Appreciate your time and encourage you to like and subscribe, rate the show if the spirit so moves you. Thank you again for tuning in. Up Close in Personnel is brought to you by our sponsors at warroom.com, the all-encompassing team management software company that is supporting teams across high school, college, and pro levels. We're talking recruiting board software, roster management tools, team communications, and so much more. Please if you haven't already, go check them out at warroom.com to get a free demo today. Now, on to this week's guest. We are joined by none other than my first ever mentor in the scouting industry, and that is Russ Landy. Russ has spent the last 14 plus years teaching a class on football, GM, and scouting with Sports Management Worldwide, a class that I took the summer entering my freshman year of college. And ever since then, we've stayed in touch the thing that's awesome about Russ is he's got such a, a a breadth and depth of experience in the scouting industry, covering it at the NFL level, at the CFL level now, and even started his career as a recruiting intern with UCLA. So he worked 10 years with both the Rams and the Browns. He's worked 20 plus years covering the media where he followed the draft as an analyst for Sporting News and National Football Post and the Big Ten Network and recently has transitioned into CFL scouting. He worked as a director of scouting for Montreal, the Alouettes, for nearly six years, followed by a one-year stint this past season with Calgary. This year, he got rehired by Montreal as their director of U.S. college scouting. And with it being fall camp and season rolling around for really all levels of football, high school, college, NFL, and CFL, I thought it would be a really good opportunity to emphasize evaluating your own team, looking at upcoming juniors for college recruiters and how to project talent, and also get somebody that could provide a real fresh and expert opinion and advice on how to evaluate practices. So some of the topics we covered were how he's learned to teach the art of scouting, advice and tips for evaluating practices, whether that be evaluating practice habits that are either good or bad, or just your note-taking process. The Packer Way, we talked about that book. It's a curriculum book for the class that he teaches, why it was selected, and how to build culture in organizations, connecting the personnel staff with the coaching staff. Lessons that Russ has learned from working at the NFL media and now CFL levels of football, and why it's important to fire a good employee when you take over a job. Last, we talked about moldable traits. What are the things that can be developed over time? And what are the things that have shown to be difficult to overcome? The non-negotiables that you have to find in a player. It was an awesome episode. I got a lot out of it. I hope you do as well. Russ is an incredible resource for young, aspiring scouts, recruiters, players. Please feel free to reach out to him. He can be found on Twitter at Russ Landy. Thanks again for tuning in. And we will now flip over to my conversation with Russ Landy. Just hit a button, Morty. Give me a beat. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Um. Russ, my man, welcome to the show. I'm excited, man. Uh, the first time being on Alex, the big time response. It, do you remember, uh, it was 2010, 
2010 uh, had to have been like June or July when I started the course. And you were in the thick of GM Junior and, and kind of running your show. I, I, I really went through and started pulling up my notes from the conference calls with you and John and um, <laughs> just that time period of just learning, learning, learning. What kind of thoughts come to mind just as far as like going back 10, 10, 12 years ago when you, I don't know if that was right when you started, you probably had been teaching that class. It was my a little third while. year. Yeah, yeah, it was my third year. And I was still trying to figure out how to teach because I'd never done anything like that before. And the classes were a lot more unstructured. And sort of like we'd get on and I'd say, you guys got any questions? And we just sort of randomly get into discussion. Someone would ask a question and it would sort of lead to a 30 minute diatribe by me about whatever position or player we were talking about. And it really, I look back and I see guys like yourself, Josh Liskowitz, and um, there's a there's co-GM of Hamilton, um, Drew Alamang who took the class. And there's a bunch of people that took it then and I think, they did it awfully well, like yourself and Drew and stuff, for me being so disorganized, because now I look at it and the class is so much more structured and so much, I think, teaches a better course that I'm amazed what you guys were able to take from it back then, 10 years ago, and turn yourself into what you guys are today. Because uh, we were really, I was sort of flying by the seat of my pants. I never talked before. <laughs> and it kind of makes me think of, I was listening to somebody, I, I wish I could reference it correctly, but... Um, he was talking about sometimes just consuming information, you just get good at consuming the info, right? So like going to a conference is you, you become a good student at going to conferences and knowing how to, you know, present yourself and take the right notes and, and attend lectures and stay focused and awake. But at the end of the day, the person teaching is learning the most. Oh, so no doubt. <laughs> you, no said, doubt about that. you said disorganized, but I, I really felt like it was a good mix of hey, study what, what decisions this GM was making. Hey, um, let's break down an NFL team, you know, go through the roster, go through the contracts. And I, I had no idea what I was looking at. I mean, I was still getting a feel for watching tape and kind of mixing in NFL decision makers, kind of the, the info side of it with the hard, fast, this is how we evaluate, these are the traits we look for. What did you learn through that process? Like, how did you kind of change the way you taught? And I a second kind of follow-up to that would be how has it helped you as a director of scouting because now you have a staff that you work with you have other guys on staff that you're you're teaching your method of evaluating well i think the biggest things for me were were sort of realizing here are the things that people need to learn the more i did the class people would come back to me whether it was guys like yourself or guys like josh and say hey you know when i met with teams or when i got my first opportunity here's where i felt i was missing out or I could have used more detail. So I said, okay, what do we have to work on? I know, I think when you did it, we actually gave you DVDs. And I think it was like Notre Dame football. Um, what I've done is I've really sort of broken it down and come to a structure to pay. Here's what we're looking at position by position. We're going to go through bang, bang, bang. I'm going to explain that. And in addition, thank goodness for two things, NFL Game Pass, because it gives people the ability to get game film instantly. And they can do all their players from one NFL team. They can watch film of them and really look at backups and stuff like that. And the other thing that I think has made it really sort of help people understand the salary cap side of it is a website called Spot Trick. And you can go there and you can look up any player, really in any sport, but really in the NFL, and look up their contract. And the signing bonus, reporting bonus, everything. And being able to refer to that has allowed the kids to get a better understanding of what I'm explaining. When I talk about dead money or how the cap, the, the, the signing bonus is spread over a contract, they can look at it while we're on the call and get a better understanding for how contracts work because SpotTrack really breaks it down. They say, here's the four years of his deal, here's a signing bonus, here's everything. And it makes it so easy for the people to understand that normally I used to have to sort of say, well, here's how a contract works, here's how a signing bonus accelerates. Now we just pull up the page and share it and say, this is how it works. And when you can see it in front of you, and that's what I've tried to do with everything, report writing, note-taking, if I can put it in front of you in a form, it becomes a lot easier to teach than me just speaking about it and you having to write down notes. Templates. like Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And that's even for what I teach when I have young guys that want to learn a scout. The biggest thing I teach them when they're first learning is don't just come up with like blank boxes to take notes, print out blank scouting reports that you're going to have to type 
and take your notes in that. Because until you see that you have enough notes in every section, you're not ready to write a report. Because if you, if you, if you don't know what you have to take notes on and you're just taking random notes, you're, you're going to miss out on certain subjects. Now, you or I have been doing this a long enough time. I can do it just fill out a box and just take my notes. But my first year in league, I wouldn't have known, hey, I forgot to look at quickness, agility, balance, or jump cutting ability, or how patient he is following blockers. And if I don't have a note on my form saying, watch how patient he is, I wouldn't even know to take notes on it or know that I didn't take notes on it. And then when I go to write the report, it's not there. So I really try to impart as you're learning, be very thorough, take your time, be very slow. It'll speed up the better you get at this. I really like the story you talked about with uh, with Matt Waldman. Y'all were on Rick Saratella's draft podcast and you were talking about you had a friend really, really passionate about football and was like, I want to do this. Uh, this this is what I'm all about. Uh, show me how to scout. And you're like, all right, come on over and came over at 830. Can you kind of go through that story oh, yeah. again real quick for us? Yeah, yeah. Well, my And it's funny. I When I was living in Jersey, I started a poker game. And so every Friday night, everybody came to my house. We played poker from about 8 p.m. till about 3 in the morning. And one of the guys, Jeff, was a diehard football. Like, lived and died. Was in, like, five fantasy leagues. And as soon as he found out that I was this scout, quote-unquote, with, with uh, I don't even know if I was with Montreal at the time, um, he was so enamored. He thought it was the, the greatest thing ever. And he was like, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to be a scout. You got to teach me. And then I was like, hey, Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. till 4, I'm watching film other than lunch. I said, you can come over anytime. He said, I'll be there Monday morning. So he showed up Monday at 8.30 for coffee, donuts, the whole thing. He was all excited. About 11 to 11.15, we finished the game, and I was about to start another one. He's like, hey, you know what? He goes, let's go to lunch. He goes, this whole scouting thing ain't for me. And I was like, why is that? He goes, you just watched one game in almost four hours. He goes, we watched some plays 14 times. He goes, what are we doing? I said, this is scouting. He goes, yeah, that ain't for me. He goes, I like to watch football and be a fan. He goes, I don't like to watch the same play. And on one guy, eight or nine reps on one guy, just see what he's doing wrong. He goes, this is not what I thought scouting was. Because most people, and you know this, Alex, most people think scouting or recruiting is you go see a game live on the weekend. They don't realize that scouts are on the road Monday through Friday, going to schools, going to practice, watching film, talking to every single person in the whole school if you're allowed to. They have no idea that goes on. And that's the hard part of the if all I had to do is go to live games, man, this would be a cakewalk in the business. Yeah. What What was your favorite part? Because um, you, you worked the Midwest. You know, you did. You scouted with the Rams. You scouted with the Browns. What was your favorite part of being on the road? Well, obviously, the relationships you build with both players, other scouts from other teams, and the coaches is great. But I love the springtime, the blessed coast. I love when you go to a school and you meet the kids – in the spring of their junior year. So before they're seniors, before they've got agents, before they've been coached up, and you get to talk to these kids unfiltered. They're not trained. They haven't been coached through everything. And you really get to know the kid themselves. And oftentimes you can give them some advice on, on things they need to work on because their egos have not grown. They haven't been through the recruiting battle of agents trying to pay them or convince them to sign with them. And you can say, hey, when I'm watching Filmia, here's the two or three things you need to work on. Or if you have a linebacker that's a borderline guy, say, hey, if you want to make it, you got a year. Bend over and learn a snap. Go spend a thousand bucks, get your family to get it, go hire a snapping coach, learn a snap. Because if you're a borderline linebacker, but you can snap, you got a 10 year career. I said, if you're a borderline linebacker who can't snap, you'll be gone in a few years. So I love the fact that you get to know these kids personally. And you really got, even the, whether it was the elite kids or the nobodies, you got to know them, you got to hear their story, and you got to help them. Even if it wasn't in football, there were a number of kids that I would go and I'd end up rejecting, but I kept in touch with them when they got out of school. I was like, hey, you're really not good enough. You didn't get an opportunity, and they kept texting. I say, you're not good enough, but here's what you should really be addressing. You're a smart kid. You have a good head on your shoulders. Here's some areas I think you do well. And those relationships to me are what the, what the beauty of scouting. And also, you see the country in areas you've never been to. I've never been to North Dakota or Wyoming or or Montana. I'm a kid from New York. To go out there and see these places, that's crazy. Places where you pull up to a hotel and they say you got to plug your car in for the night. He's like, what are they talking about? Plug my car in for the night. Who does that? <laughs> and and the film process was a little different as well. Um, I, I, I heard you talk about there was a, 
there was a scout on the road and there was no place to watch the film so he like had to set it up in a bathroom uh how well, that how, was before that was before me we'll say that that, mm-hmm. that was my old mentor joe thomas used to talk uh, about way way back like, in the day yeah in the days there'd be no room for the scouts now every school has a room for the scouts which is amazing but it's not always been that way it's crazy and it's so easy now to get the film i mean nowadays a lot of scouts don't even watch it at the school because it's already on the laptop on sunday morning so they yeah. do all the film work in their hotel so they can just go to the school now i think that's a mistake I think you should be watching when you're there because it refreshes your memory, even if it's just a game on offense, game on defense, because then you're going out to practice. And if you watch it that day, it'll remind you, oh, this is what I want to peek at that corner, or this is what I want to see with that quarterback. Because if you don't have all that in your head that day, you may forget to look at certain things out on the practice. When you say look at certain things on the practice field, when you're evaluating practices, I think this is really, really relevant right now. Everybody's going into fall camp. Uh, scouts are on the road. And for recruiting staff people, you're, you're obviously watching your own guys because it's a dead period. How do you approach evaluating a practice? Because I think it, a lot of times you hear the cliches of, you know, what's his you know, practice habits like? Oh, he's got good practice habits, bad practice habits. Can we define those uh, just for our listeners? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many things. I mean, does he listen? I mean, when you watch some of these players in practice, some of them are attentive. Listen to the coach, and you can actually see as the coach is saying, I want you to do this. You can see him moving his feet or moving his hands to try to replicate what the coach is saying. Other times you see players either act like it's not important or even times where you see a kid turn his back to the coach and clearly not be listening. Um, and how do they also interact with their teammates? Are they a leader? Are they a follower? Being a follower is okay if they're a good follower, if they listen to the leader and do what they, they're supposed to do. Um how important is practice to them? You can tell which guys it matters to and which guys it doesn't. And how the other thing that always to me was important is when you would get to a school and if you have good sources, they could tell you, hey, here's the five or six guys that they're playing this week. They're battling through some stuff. That they're, they're hurting a little bit. Well, which guys, when you get out there, which guys are toughing it out and really trying to practice? And the other guys that they said, yeah, they're, they're dinged up, but they should be out there. And all of a sudden, they have excuses for not practicing or they don't show for practice. I mean, it's not that you have to practice hurt, but at least it gives you a little indication of how much does he want it, how important is football. And also it's great when you go to a school where they run a tradition, whatever it is, a, an offense or a defense that doesn't highlight his skill set. And you're able to ask the position coach, hey, I know you don't normally do this in games, but can I get three or four reps of him doing this? And some of the schools that are really good in terms of helping NFL teams or CFL teams, they'll let a kid do something that they normally wouldn't practice just so you can peak. So if you're a team that runs, if you're a wishbone team, you're not throwing 50 passes, but if you can get them to maybe throw a receiver 20 or 30 balls in practice, even if it's after some of the position drills, you at least get a chance to see a guy who may not catch many balls, see him actually catch the ball over and over and over to see if there's a bad habit he has. So there's a lot of little things you pick up on in practice, obviously body types, and also, if a guy has, quote, unquote, recovered from an injury in past seasons, is he favoring? Is it something that you look at and think, this may be a long-term thing? A guy that's coming off an ACL from two years ago who still doesn't walk right, that's a big red flag. And you mark it so your trainers and your medical people can find out, is this something that he's able to play with in college, but he probably won't be able to structurally hold up when he gets to the NFL. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a great point on – before when you were talking about watching the film, okay, these are the things that he's either good at or has deficiencies in. I'm going to focus on that. Can you kind of detail that maybe in a nine on seven or a seven on seven kind of setting? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean a perfect example. If you're watching a receiver and he's constantly a beat laid off the ball and you're wondering what's the deal. Well, when you go out to practice, you want to see, is that how he is in practice? Does he always have that sort of false step? Or is that something that only happens in games? And are they coaching them? This is the biggest thing to me. When you see a deficiency on film, whether it's an offensive tackle not using his hands or a running back pass blocking with bad technique, when you get to practice, whether it's seven on seven team or whatever it may be, is the coach trying to correct that? Because if the coach is not trying to correct it, you can't put all the blame on the player. Because if he's not being coached to do it, he may not even know. Or if the player is doing something stupid, on film 
the way he's doing something or bad footwork and you go out to practice and that's actually what they're coaching, you definitely can't blame the player because they're telling him to do something that's stupid. So you really, it's important. Any little thing you see that is what you think a deficiency or a problem, you need to make sure when you go to practice, you find out if this is what they're asking you to do, is this what they're coaching. And a perfect example, when you watch Iowa linemen, you never see them shoot their hands and punch. So if you're an initial guy, so wow, they never punch, you'll be like, oh, smokes. But then as you watch more film and then you go to practice, you learn that they bring, they're, they're believers that bring their hands up from underneath and get a fit within the shoulder. They don't like the punch. So what you may have downgraded as he doesn't have the ability to punch is they're not being asked to do. So you really have to pay attention to the details so that you're not downgrading a kid or giving him too much credit for something that really is not his doing. And that's important because this scouting is hard enough, nonetheless, when you make mistakes because you're basing it on something that really the player has no control of. I love that just the – He's not being asked to do that. This is what he's being asked to do. And, and it's it's so easy to overlook and just to knock and kill kill player after player. But the context is huge. How how long do you think it took you to get to the place where when you took notes, you, you didn't have to print out a blank report. You were able to just jot it all down, whether it was in a voice record. I know a lot of people do that. Or just taking notes on, on, a, on a sheet of practice. Um, and then you immediately go back, you know where that goes. I, I'm kind of the same way now with when I'm watching a recruit, like there's these check boxes that just go off, like click, 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 yep. click. Okay, this is missing. This is a red flag or, or, you know, okay, I need to monitor this in his next upcoming season. How long do you think it took you from a matter of maybe not necessarily hours, I guess it would be like years of, of scouting. Um, how long did it well, take you to really have a like a maybe not a comfortability, but like confidence in where things go. I would say for watching film, it was probably about a year and a half. Um, I was fortunate when I got hired by the Rams, I got the job because an older guy who was about 58 had dropped dead of a heart attack. And they hired his son to replace him because they wanted to keep supporting the family. Well, the son was not particularly good. So then they needed an intern. So they brought me in. And they said, here's all the stuff he did. But this guy, even though he had a computer on his desk, and this is 1994, didn't use a computer. So he would work from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. on these long projects for all the coaches at the scouting department. When I came in, I had just gotten out of college, so I was computer literate. Within a month, I was working from 7 a.m. to about 9.30 in the morning, and I was done with these projects because it was all on the computer. So I didn't have to spend the whole day. So my boss said, well, just put a chair next to me and watch film. So he'd been in the league since 1955. He was on the first L.A. Chargers staff with uh, Sid Gilman and, and Al Davis and Chuck Knoll. So wow. he was sort of – he'd been around forever. So he just put a chair next to his desk and said, you're going to help me grade the opponent. So for a year and a half, I just sat there every day with him for eight hours and he grade. So after a year and a half, I felt comfortable. I knew I didn't need to have a report for him to take notes because I've been doing it with him. The harder part for me – was that first year at the Browns was how to properly take notes when I'm going to practice. Because in practice, you can't pause it. You can't rewind it. You have to have a way to take quick notes on the right player instantly without missing too much of the the next two or three reps of practice. And that to me was the hardest thing. And it took me a while to come up with a grid I use um, that sort of separates the, the skill positions and the linemen and I can flip the page over to see either one, but that way I can just hum through it and I can just write check mark or two or three little um, abbreviations. And I don't spend all day writing and it missed the next three reps. So the practice thing took a lot of time. That was very hard um, to get a great feel for. But I think that took a good full season with the Browns, being on the road, going to tons of college practices to really get a feel for how to appropriately grade guys live. Because you want to be cautious if you see one or two plays and then you miss three or four, you can't make a conclusion based on those one or two because those next three or four may have been terrible. So you have to be really good about keeping your eyes on practice and knowing where the names are on your sheet so you can put jots down without missing much of the action. And that is not easy. That took a while to get good. Can you maybe break break that down a little more, just the, sure. the practice side and, and what that grid looks like? Because I'm really, really curious to know – I. I've kind of adapted how I watch practice and how I focus on it for recruiting people. Like 
oftentimes and during the spring you've got recruits on campus so you get pulled away and i that really really resonates with me that i know when i'm watching practice i can't make a conclusion until i go back and watch the practice film and some yes. days like based off of what i have work-wise i'm not able to watch every single rep in practice so what does that grid look like and how do you kind of utilize really really quick note-taking so depending on where I'm going, if I'm just going to a school where maybe there's 12 prospects, I'll separate it little, maybe 12, there'll be 12 boxes total, six on one side of the page, six on the other, skill position on one side and the alignment on the other, so that whatever area of practice, I can just flip it to and take notes. Like if I'm watching a receiver, I'm going to put check if they make a nice catch. If they body catch, I'm just going to write BC. If I see good change of direction, I'll put QAB. COD. If they run a good route, I'll say R plus. If they run a bad route, R minus. And that way, I don't have to write out full sentences, but when I leave, if I've written BC four times and R minus twice, then I'm looking at a guy who ran bad routes and body caught the ball the whole practice, like, wait a second, there's a problem. Or when I flip over and I'm looking at linemen, if I'm watching pass pro and I see a guy get whipped over and over, I'll write PP negative, BP negative. Um, or I'll put G for on ground, because I want if I have a lineman that's on the ground all the time, I don't care how good you are as an athlete. If you're always on the ground, that to me is a major red flag, regardless of how talented you are. So I just try to keep it real simple. Now, I will say the All-Star Games gets a little more crazy. Instead of six boxes per page, I got about probably 30, because I got to look at everything. But those, you can never see every rep. So you just take what you can get and get a feel as best you can at those and try to watch the film after. The nice thing is Senior Bowl, you get the practice film. When I go to Rice, what I don't see in practice, I can't go back in and say, hey, let me see the practice film. Most schools will not let you watch the practice film. They'll let you watch previous games, but practice film is not uh, up for grabs. Although maybe at some of the schools, like in Iowa or something like that, they're probably a little more open to that, but not many schools have given you practice film. And you know this. Uh, there, there are some coaches out there that once period four hits or period five, oh, you yeah. go to team, oh, y'all are out. Yeah, uh, Mark D'Antonio at Michigan State was famous. You get those first four. And he was like, have a good one. Goodbye. Whereas out of Iowa, literally, you could put a chair right in the middle of the of the seven on seven and Kirk on throw you. He loves you. Kirk bends over backwards. And that the, the schools that do that, the fringe guys are the guys that benefit. Yeah. Because those are the ones that get extra looks. Whereas the schools that don't, their fringe guys are punished. Yeah. Because you don't get extra time to see them athletically. So you're going to pass on because you're not going to know enough. Whereas if you get that extra time to watch practice, that third, fourth corner that doesn't play may grab your attention a few drills, doing something athletic. You say, no, I better go pull a clip of all his reps that he's got in his whole career, which may only be eight, but at least you get the reps and you go look at it. If you're at a school where you can't even look at it, you don't even know to look at it. And those guys get overlooked. So I don't think the coaches realize how much they're hurting their fringe guy. Because the elite guys are going to get found no matter what. Right. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to go look at the Trevor Lawrence and say, yeah, he probably ought to be drafted. But it's the guy that's a, a borderline free agent that's a rotational guy in your D-line that you need people to see him do everything possible to get him a chance. More information creates more confidence. Yep, that's why I'm a big believer. If you ever want to find out as an agent who to, rep who to go after, go after the – the like the the non-fast receivers at schools with a premier quarterback, the guys who are great route runners and stuff like that, because so many people are going to go watch that quarterback to scout him, and that guy's going to get so many passes thrown his way, he's a guarantee to at least get into a camp. Just because if he's a good kid, he's going to interview well, he's going to catch like 70 balls, even if he can't run, and those guys get chances. Where if a guy's a bad quarterback, Unless you're a superstar athlete, there's a good chance you may not even get looked at by scouts. So when you have a high-end quarterback, you got to recruit all those receivers if you're an agent because they're all going to get looks. Yeah. I mean, I, I can point to when Ed Oliver was at Houston for us, Nick Thurman played in some games for the Patriots this past year, and Cam Alvo just got another contract with the Browns. It's Yep. It, it is a uh, an awesome opportunity for those guys. I wanted to take a step back, kind of way, way back, um, the Packer way. Why did you pick that as the textbook that we learned off of? 
Well, firstly, it was recommended to me by the people who run it at SMWW. They said, do you think this would be a good book? So I read through it and I really liked it. Um, I liked a lot of things they talked about in the book about how you have to set the culture, build that. Um, and one thing resonated with me, um, and, I, and I don't know if you were in the class when I used to tell this funny story, because one of the things in the back of the way that they talk about is, if you're gonna come into an organization that's been losing, one of the things you need to do is find a good employee and just fire them. And sort of make that your way of saying, hey, nobody's safe, we're changing the way things are done. And I always looked at that and thought that might've been me when Vermeil and Charlie Army took over, because Vermeil had promoted me, but then I went back to scouting and Charlie fired me, everybody in the building was shot. And I vote, and at that time I was pissed, but as I looked back and was teaching the course, I thought it might've been because I was that sort of sacrificial lamb of, we need to teach people that what's been going on here for all these years of losing is not acceptable no matter how well you do your job. And that sort of made sense to me, not that I was happy that I was fired, but changing the culture in a building is and the Rams had a really bad culture. Losing was completely fine. Nobody cared. So often we heard people talk about, it doesn't really matter if we lose, we're just happy to have a team back in St. Louis. And, and you can't have that. That's un If you yeah. have that in your building, you're going to lose. And Vermeil was trying to change that. So I just liked the way that the book spoke to how important culture was, how every person in the building has to be pulling in the same direction for you to have a chance of winning. And just that one part of having to fire a good employee just for the sake of making a statement, it sort of resonated with me, even though I, I had been that employee, I thought, um, that, that I liked the book. I thought it pointed towards, if you're going to win, you have to change the way things are done in that building, not just about finding good players. Good players, there are a lot of teams of good players that don't win ever. If you look at the Chargers, they may have one of the two or three most talented rosters year after year, and... In the last nine years, they've never won the division, despite having, despite having a borderline Hall of Fame quarterback in Philip Rivers. And they never won the division once in not the last nine years. And that's ridiculous. And that tells you that they need to do things better as an organization. And they couldn't win a Super Bowl with a Hall of Fame running back, too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy. They had so much talent for so many years. It just as an organization. I mean, they fired a head coach, went 14-2. and two because they sided with the GM who really had never really done anything where he was in charge. I mean, he'd been with successful teams, but he'd never been the man in charge, whereas Marty had won everywhere he'd gone. And it's just, and it's frustrating because I think the people there are great people. I think the ownership, they're good people. I just think the organization, they may need somebody to sort of get them pointed in the right direction. Hopefully this new head coach will do that. But that to me, that's an example of an organization that they're so talented that they don't win. Yeah. And, and culture is such a big word. The front office is not just the front office in its entirety, right? It's, it's the personnel side and there's the ownership aspect plus the coaching. And, and really, there, you can't really separate who's more important than the other. They all have, all have to coexist. And work together. And work That's together. That's the other thing. If they're not working together – and communicating, and in a lot of buildings, they're not. A lot of buildings, they're separate. They're like, we scout, we coach. And to me, I'm not saying there's only one way to do it. I've seen very few teams ever be successful where they're not lockstep, where the coaches say, this is the type of player we want, both physically, mentally, everything. And they work with the scouting department to make sure those are the only players that end up on the ground. Because so, you can't bring in guys that the coaches don't want. Right, to avoid the, uh, the Bill Parcells, like, you know, yeah, you asked me to cook cook the food. At least I can go get the groceries. How do you build a, a really good culture in your personnel department of a, you know attacking that and really focusing on working lock and step with the coaching staff? You know, one of the things I thought that Butch Davis did that was really good um, when he was at the Browns was every year in training camp he would have each position coach come in and watch film with us and say, "This is what I want." At Outside corner, this is what I want at slot. This is what I want at Will, Sam, whatever. And that way, at least when we go on the road as a staff, we know what we're looking for. We have an idea. Because if he tells us, hey, we don't, we only want corners who are press who, or who can be good in press, you know what? When I go out on the road and I see a corner that doesn't like to play physical, isn't willing to use his hands, well, I have a pretty good idea. That guy's not going to fit in a building. 
And not that I'm not going to write him up. He's still got to write a report on him. But you're not going to give him a grade and even bring him into the discussion if he's not going to be the type of guy your coaches are going to want. Um, it just doesn't make sense to not communicate. The other thing I think that's really important is if you're a boss who's competent and wants to build good culture of communication, everybody has to be allowed to voice an opinion. And even if they're completely wrong, you can't just kill them for being wrong. You have to want them to voice an opinion so that you get discussions. I know most of the good executives that I know in the NFL, they love the quote-unquote fighting and draft between coaches and scouts and scouts and other scouts. Because the more you discuss and watch film and argue about players, the more likely you are to get at the truth. Whereas there are some buildings where there's a hierarchy and if you're a scout and your opinion differs from the director or a coach, you don't speak. You, you, you don't get up and fight for the guys you want because the coach has made it clear he doesn't like those guys. And that's risky because if you're not all willing to discuss guys and, and really be open about, hey, I don't, a great example, Joe Mack was our assistant GM in Montreal. And this to me was a perfect example was we were watching film one time in training camp. We needed to bring up a linebacker. Joe said, hey, guys, I got this linebacker. I think I found a guy that would be a good fit. He said, let, let me throw him up there. And we watched him. We all agreed he was pretty good. We said, does anybody else have any guys? And we each threw out two or three names. We watched him. And one of the guys that someone else brought up, he goes, that's the guy. He goes, that guy's better than my guy. And one, and the guy who's linebacker was said, oh, you sure you're okay going with my guy? He goes, if we start choosing players based on whose guy they are, and not them being our guy, he goes, we may as well start packing our bags. He goes, we ain't going to beat them. He goes, we got to find our guy. Not my guy, not your guy. It's got to be our guy. We have to find the best player that can help our team. And I thought for a guy who'd been in the NFL for 30 years, it was a great sort of learning experience because he, he could have been like, hey, I've done this 30 years. I've won Super Bowls. I've got rings. Shut up. My, my guy's the guy we've got to go with. But he said, no, it's about the best player that's going to help our team. And when you have an executive that thinks that way and tells people that and really not just says it, but follows through on it, that makes everybody, coaches, scouting assistants, scouts, administrators, everybody believe that it's a team effort. And one and Coach Vermeil made a great statement once when he took over the Rams. He said, if we lose Sunday night, your last thought, regardless of your job, whether you're the janitor in the building, whether you work in sales or you're in scouting coaching, your last thought going to bed should be, how can I do my job better next week to make the players and coaches' lives easier so they can do their job better and we can win? He said, if your first thought all the time is not, what can I do to make the coaches and players better positioned to do their job at the highest level, then you are not doing your job to the best of your abilities. And it was a good lesson because a lot of times you think, hey, I'm doing everything I can. I'm doing my job right. But if the team's not winning, you're not doing everything right. Because there's something you can do to help to make the team better. And Vermeil was really a big believer that we only go as far as our weakest member. And that was both as players and coaches and scouts. That's really good. I'm, I'm still taking some notes. You left Montreal after being yep. there for a, a good bit. I was there as, six years, got whacked. Yep. And, and you go to Calgary and you come back as a director of U.S. Scouting. How is your position now different from when you were there? And what lessons did you learn from the previous experience there um, that have helped you kind of regrow their scouting department? Well, I think the, the, the first thing, the great part is now I'm in charge of the U.S. So like when it comes to scouting NFL teams to evaluate players for the CFL, I'm in charge of who's, who's evaluating what team, the system we're using to do it, how we're going to write the reports and, and how we're going to meet and sort of rank these players. Um, I think the biggest lesson I learned was a just seeing what we did in Montreal and then going through an organization like Calgary, who has sort of been the sort of the, they've been the, the premier franchise for the past 15 years in the CFL. They've averaged double digit wins for over a decade. And to see how another team did it up there was a real good learning stick for me because I'd, I'd seen the way the NFL does it. Nobody in the CFL is as organized as the NFL. Nobody scouts like that in the CFL. And that was always frustrating to me with Montreal. I was trying to impart how to do things better. No one wanted to hear it. Then I go to Calgary and see how they're doing it. And they're the most organized I could have hoped for. 
So I took what they were doing and said, okay, how are we going to take what they're doing, implement my ideas with that and bring that to Montreal. And when Danny um, got permission to interview me and interviewed me, I told him, Hey, I really want to run with this. I want to give some structure to some of the things we're doing. And he loves it. And, and he lets me really not so much dictate. That's not how it would be, but he lets me bring up ideas and he's the GM. So he takes what, what he likes from what he doesn't, but he allows me to really say, Hey, I've been doing this a long time. I'm not saying I'm always right or wrong, but I have a lot of ideas that I've developed over the years, how to be better organized, how to better identify Canadian players that can help us. And he's let me do that. He's really let me sort of dive deep into making our way of doing things more efficient and better. And I've also made it abundantly clear that, Hey, if you want to really get involved in player evaluation and you're going to be in our building and voice an opinion, better write a report on a player. I don't want people watching film and then voicing opinions because if you don't write them up, it does very little good because it may be great today when we talk about them, but we're talking about 20 players. We're not signing 20. And then three months from now, we're looking at the best players at that position again. If you haven't written a report, we got to rehash the whole discussion we had three months ago because none of the reports were in the system. Whereas if every report gets written, I can just press a button and pull up the best players. And then we can all watch film together as opposed to rehashing a discussion of the same players before we can figure out which guys to watch film. So it's something I've really tried to push is if you watch him, write him. And if you want to bring a guy out, like I brought up a player yesterday, I went and found my notes. I typed his report, threw it in the system, said, here's the guy I want to add to the negatives. This is why here's his report. And we got him on the negatives. It's important to write your players up without reports. I mean, Joe Collins used to say, until you write a report, you never scout. Yeah. Wow. And you know this, you've been doing this a long time. When you grade a player and you take notes on them, what you think may be a great player or a bad player, when you actually sit down to write the report, sometimes your grade changes. Because all of a sudden you realize a lot of those notes about great stuff, they're about one thing you did well. And a lot of your negatives or everything else. And as you write the report, you're like, wow. He really is fast. And other than that, everything else there is a negative. But in your mind, just from the notes, you're like, oh, I really like this kid. He can really run. But when you actually have to put it in form and put it, fill in boxes for athleticism, route running, hands, contested catches, key situations, all those different things, that's when you really get the, the true picture of the player. Right. And from a college scouting perspective, uh, as an NFL scout or a CFL scout, Normally you go team by team and, and it helps you get a good parameter, a, a good barometer of what plays, what starts, what's good, what's not. And for scouts in the college level, what we like to do and what I really like to focus on is I'll build out the list and we kind of talk about it from an identification versus evaluation where identifying is, does he fit? Does he have the height, weight, speed? Does he have the traits that we look for? at a position of need in a class that we have the spots for. And then we build out the board, you put like a really generic identification grade on them. And that determines yeah. kind of the priority of who gets watched first. And then we just go through position by position and it helps me to basically stack them. Okay. Yeah, Cause like, as sense. I'm going, as I'm going through it, I'm like, I really, really like this kid. I go three more kids down. I'm like, this guy's the best one. And I just wanted to ask you now that you're in the CFL scouting, and COVID's changed the way we scout. It, um, you know, some teams are on the road, some teams aren't on the road. Do you like watching position by position or do you rather watch team by team? I mean, I think for efficiency during the year, you have to do schools just so you can get those players graded. But I think when you put your rankings and your grades together, doing position by position makes so much sense because if I have five guys, and in our building, we have a GM, me, and then two other guys. If each of us looks at six different players at each position, our eye is not only different, but the grades we give. We may be, certain people are high graders, certain people are low graders. So a 6-1 from Eric, who works with the Alouettes, and a 6-1 from me may be totally different grades. So the ability for me to say, hey, Eric, you watch the corners, I'll watch the receivers, after we've all put our initial grades in, it helps you rank. I'm a big believer that you want to have one or two people in your building. In the NFL, you can get two. CFL, maybe you can get one to grade the 20 or 30 best guys in each position. 
because that's one set of eyes. And it makes it a lot easier to differentiate when I'm watching one after the other. Just like when you go to the combine and you watch the position drills, you can give pluses for guys that are good athletes and minuses for guys that are bad because you see them right after each other. So it's very easy to identify the guys that, oh, you know what, this guy's a lot stiffer than that guy who just worked out. Now, obviously, it's a workout in shorts and T-shirt, so you're not going to say, oh, he's a better player and a better athlete just based on this. But at least if you're in a tiebreaker and you have guys with very similar grades and you say, you know what, this one guy, at least in his workout, looked dramatically more athletic. Well, shoot, if they're equal in your film grade and your character grade, I'm always going to take the guy who worked out as a better athlete if that's the only differentiating thing. So, yeah, looking at the same players at one position, positional cross-checks to me are vital to being a, to being efficient and to make sure nobody gets overlooked. Yeah. This and it is... also gets rid of the fact that there are, my old boss, Joe Combs, he, was, he would always joke that he's a high grade. He loves everybody. He rare, if a kid was draftable, he rarely gave him below like the fifth round grade. That's just who Joe was. And then there's me who, if I give 10 when I was in the NFL, if I would give maybe eight to 10 first round grades a year, that was a lot. I'm a really hard grader. I give a ton of guys that could draft in the sixth, seventh round marginal free agent grades because I don't think they're good enough. So you have to balance that. And that's how having one guy grade all the players at one position helps you balance that because you can balance off my being too hard on guys. And then someone like Joe, who may be too easy on guys, find that middle ground and make sure one opinion has seen all 30 corners that you guys are realistically going to put on your draft. Have you found yourself to become less of a of a yes. less of a stickler? Have you have you started to adapt? Have you started to change that over time as you notice that you are a hard grader? And primarily from Joe, because Joe really emphasized when I first got in the league, that person who'd been in the league fifty five years or fifty years, Jack Faulkner, he would crush guys. He was a big believer in, and so is Charlie Army at the Rams. The more guys you get off your board the easier it is to get the guys right that are left on the board. And while I agree with that, the one thing Joe Collins really stressed to me was, hey, yeah, let's make the pool as small as possible. But he said, let's also remember, you have to play games. So you have to find guys that can play. He goes, you must tell me what they can do because we may have to draft. And he goes, if you don't tell me what they can do well, I'm going to be sitting here with a draft board with 47 players up. And he said, then after the third round, I got nobody left to draft. So he said, yes, be hard on guys, kill them if they're absolute rejects. But if they're not an absolute reject, tell me what they can do and at least that they can fill a role. And a perfect example, not of migrating, but of another guy, is we were at the Rams, and this was before Joe, but a perfect example is there was a kid who had started, I think, at Texas. He was a four-year starting offensive tackle from his true, never even redshirt, started every game of his career. He was 6'6", like 325. And our scout rejected him, didn't even write him up. And given, this guy never ended up playing a day in the NFL. So he was a terrible player. But Charlie, our GM in St. Louis at the time, said, hey, he goes, we can't reject guys like that. He goes, let's just put it real broadly. He goes, how many people in the world are six foot six and 325 pounds? He goes, we're already down at almost nobody. He goes, how many are willing to play football at a professional level and trade years off their life to get paid? He goes, and how many of those played Division I football? And how many of those played at a Power 5 school and started for four years? He goes, we're talking almost none. He goes, in the worst case, he's a low-level free agent. He goes, because when we get to training camp and need a body, we know we can practice with him because he knows how to be professional. He understands what it takes because he started 40 games at a major powerhouse school. And the kid did get signed as a free agent, but he was in and out literally in days because he was so bad. But it was a great lesson to remember that you need players. So you can't reject all of them. So it's important to put on paper what they can do. And that's something I've become much better at both through my experience and also coming to the CFL because you really have to project these Canadians. Because the Canadian kids, unlike the NFL, NFL, you draft them, they're not good enough, you got to cut them. In the CFL, if I draft a Canadian kid, that's the whole CFL draft, almost all of them have remaining eligibility. So we suspend them and we send them back to school. And they can go play another year or two or three, depending on their eligibility. So perfect example, my second or third year with the Alouettes, we drafted a kid named Sean Jameson out of Western. 
third or fourth round. We thought he was going to be a really good lineman. He came to training camp, and he was the worst lineman, period. He was terrible. So we cut him, suspend him, send him back to Western. He comes back the next year. Now, he's not terrible, but he's still not anywhere good enough to even make our practice. So we cut him and suspend him again, send him back to Western. Comes back, that third training camp, he was good enough to make it as a backup. I think a year and a half later, he gets in the lineup, and now he's probably one of the five best Canadian linemen in the whole CFL. And that's the one thing that's made me a much better scout is, hey, these kids going to get a chance, a lot of them, to go back to school for a year or two. So you have to project where they're going to be with another year or two of playing college football. How can their skills develop? Can they become better players? And that's made me a far better scout. I was going to ask you for some advice on evaluating underclassmen in high school because we're looking at a kid's sophomore film and he's getting a full year of growing and developing and learning the sport. And then junior year becomes the big recruiting year. So you, you talked about, okay, I've got to be able to project what he can be, not what he is. What have you seen are the most moldable, developable traits versus the ones that you just can't overcome? Like those are just hard and fast, like can't fix that. Well, a few things. I'm a big believer that if he's like for an offensive lineman, if a kid's athletic and he has the frame, but he's 255 pounds, I think it's easier to add 40 pounds of muscle over a two, three, four year period than it is to try to make a guy that's 300 pounds already, but a bad athlete. To try to make a bad athlete a good athlete, I think it's impossible. But trying to make a guy who lacks strength or lacks bulk bigger is possible. So, I mean, to me, I look at strength as a fixable thing, technique, a fixable thing. I don't think effort is fixable. I don't think athleticism is fixable. Um, I do think there are guys, and especially you're coming out of high school, where you try to project, are they going to get bigger? That's one of the things that to me would probably be the hardest part of what you do is the guys that are 5'9", how do you project them? Are they going to get to six feet? Are they going to be able to grow? And that, to me, has got to be the hardest part because guys have different growth spurts in high school. But I think the biggest thing to look at for me, if I were looking at kids, is I want to see athleticism, competitiveness, and are they good kids? And I don't mean good kids, and this is another thing that I've learned over the years. There's football character and there's character character. I'm much more worried about the football character than I am the character character. Because if you're good inside my building, I'm not overly concerned, not overly, but the stuff outside the building is not as big a concern, but I, I don't think size and strength are that much of a deterrent. If guy's a little bit shorter or needs to improve his playing strength or needs to improve his technique, that wouldn't bother me as much as a guy who lacks athleticism or isn't inherently competitive. Guys that aren't inherently competitive, I think very rarely change. The football character and playing hard and like loving the game, seeker of action. That that's the way Bobby would always talk about it. Is like, is he a seeker of action? Like, does he find like does he find a way to get involved? Yep, it's so it it's so true because especially when you look at pass rushers. I mean, yes, are there freaks of nature like Joey Bosa and Miles Garrett that can just do what they want? Yeah, but if you look at a lot of the other really productive pass rushers in the NFL. A lot of them are good athletes, but they're productive because they are unwavering in their efforts. They never stop rushing. That effort never lessens. So when you can't find guys that don't play like that all the time, that's the risk is you bring them into the building. Not only will they not be productive, but if you allow them to stay because they're so gifted, other players see that and think, I don't have to compete all the time. He's still here. He hasn't been cut. And it, to me, it's very risky. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer that the amount of guys that change their inherent competitiveness is very, very, very rare. It's so hard to get inside the guy's head and figure out what makes them tick that to, to be able to do that and project a guy that's going to change and become competitive, I think it's really, really tough. I think you either have it or you don't. And I'm always there with guys that don't have it. Now, all that being said, 
I get down to the sixth, seventh round of the NFL draft, or if I'm looking to bring guys to Canada, when you get guys with freaky talent that haven't been productive, when you get late and you're throwing darts, yeah, I may take a kid that's inherently uncompetitive because there's only so many humans who can change NFL games or change CFL games. There are a lot of guys who can play in the NFL. Very few can change games. So if I got a guy who's, who's not a competitive kid, but he's, a, he's an athlete or an athlete who has enough athleticism to change NFL games, I'll throw a dart on him late in the draft. Why not? Because if we figure out what makes him tick, we may have a star. But in general, guys who don't compete, they never compete. And that, to me, is the most frustrating part of the business. You Because you want them to succeed. You want, They're on your team. You want them to be great. And you see them not caring, not staying in shape, not hitting guys, letting guys hit them. It's That, to me, is the single hardest thing in all of football is figuring out above a guy's shoulders. How competitive are they? How willing are they to play through pain, deal with the, the normal bumps and bruises of playing football? It, 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 that's the hardest part, figuring out what makes these guys tick. I want to get a specific example of maybe a player that you graded highly and you knew he had some competitiveness concerns and maybe it bit you, you know, you know, bit you in the back. Um, and while you're thinking of that, I just have to say like Marcus Golden is the first name that popped to my head because when he was coming out, they had another guy, he got picked, um, he got picked by the Broncos, uh, Zach, Shane, Ray. Shane, Shane Ray. So Shane Ray um, is like the sexy speed rusher, but I, I really didn't like him because I thought he was really stiff bending the edge. He was kind of like a one to two move guy and he was very linear and he didn't always play hard. And then you had Michael Sam, who is this try hard, but like you knew from a phys- physical trait standpoint, he was going to have his limitations. And then you had uh, Marcus Golden, who – had better traits than Michael Sam, but not quite as explosive as Shane Ray. And I just remember, I didn't love how, like his, just his overall athleticism, but he was so good with his hands. He was so tough. He was so physical. He was so competitive and he never stopped. Like his motor ran hot all day. And I think I gave him like a mid round grade, like a, like a, what would have equated to a fourth or a fifth as like a good backup that could be a situational starter. But I mean, he has just carved out this career and just lasted. And he was so good with the Cardinals. I think he's bounced. I don't know where he's at now. But um, just while I was talking about that, like, was there anybody that just jumped to your mind as like, okay, I learned my lesson with with this player, and this is why? Probably Beanie Wells would be the first one, the running back. Um, I can't even remember what school he went to, but he was the first round. Oh, it was Ohio State. I think. Um, first round pick of the Cardinals. Um, very similar, I think, talent and athletic-wise to Ezekiel Elliott. Thickly built, explosive, powerful kid, good outrun angles, um, had natural balance, could catch the ball out of the backfield. But that inherent desire every single snap to get everything out of every play, to compete, it just I, – I, I gave him credit for being more competitive than he was. And given he suffered some injuries in the NFL, but he was never able – to just play with that ferocity that he needed, that Ezekiel Elliott does play with, that allows Elliott to be such a tremendous player. He's one that to this day frustrates me. He, uh, gosh, that one, that one killed me. I really thought he had the tools, and I, and I overlooked and didn't bash him for not competing every snap. Yeah. And I will say Golden was a good example. You talk about a guy that was a hell of a player in Missouri. I loved watching him. He was slippery. He could get skinny. He'd go inside and outside. And he was – I liked him a lot, and, and he's turned into a hell of a player. And it's actually interesting because Shane Ray's now in the CFL. Really? He came up to Toronto, made their team, um, killed it in training camp. Then he got hurt in the season opener this past weekend and is out for a while. Um, yeah, but he uh, he came up there and, and sort of said uh, that's how much he clearly wants to play football because in the CFL you don't get paid much, but he still wants to play. So I give him credit. So it'll be interesting to see how his career unfolds up there. But, uh, yeah, Marcus Golden was a hell of a player in college. I thought he had a chance to be a high-end player in the NFL. I was probably a little too high on him, but he's turned into a good, productive player in the NFL. Yeah, yeah. And before we get out, um, I don't know if everyone knows your love for hockey and the fact that you've you've been playing that game for a while. 
Um, not necessarily talking about playing the game, but as a fan of it, and I, I really don't watch it very much, but I have listened to, you know, different MLB scouting people and NHL scouting people on podcasts because you can find whatever you want. Yeah. Um, have you studied any NHL teams in terms of how they approach team building? And are there any parallels that you've pulled? I have not. Um, I am hoping now to be able to get in touch with the Rangers people because they just hired Mike Greer, whose brother is the GM of the Dolphins. Oh, wow. Because Mike played in the NHL for 13, 14 years, um, has been an executive. And Mike and Chris's dad was an executive of the Patriots. And I've known Chris for years. I'm not tied with him or anything. But I'm hoping Chris can put me in touch because I'd love to talk with him about it. And I'm also hoping to meet up with the people with the Blackhawks because I'm in Chicago and just say, hey, I'd love to share my thoughts uh, and get some ideas from you guys as to what you do. Like, I was amazed that you'll find this because you're, you're in a football facility there and I'm at the Alouettes facility when I go to Montreal. When I go, where I learned to skate and play ice hockey three and a half years ago when I started, it was at the Blackhawks facility where they, it's also a public, like they give lessons, but it's the same rink that they practice. And above it are their team offices. So as part of your taking lessons and paying to do that, you get to get a tour. So you go up and you see their meeting rooms. And the thing that blew me away is there are no chairs. Anywhere. Their meeting rooms are strictly exercise bikes. And everybody's got to be on them. And everybody's got to be pedaling for the meeting to go. Because oh, hockey is such a cardio sport that you can't ever not have your cardio. So in the big meeting room, there's 20 exercise bikes and a podium in front. You're just and, a huge fan just the whole time. Yeah, you're you, exactly. It's like, it's crazy, but I guess that's how they do it. I asked the guy who's giving the tour. He's like, yeah, he goes, there's no meeting rooms for players without bikes. He said the coaches have a room where they'll meet, but he said when the players meet, they're on bikes. And I thought how, to me, just that alone was a really unique learning experience to think that as a way to keep their guys in cardio shape, they force them to, Stay in cardio shape just in meetings. And I thought it was a brilliant idea. So I can't wait to learn how they evaluate because to me, hockey, the most unique thing of it is, is you could have the most skilled, talented athletes who have the greatest hands, shooting ability, everything, agility, everything. Doesn't matter if they can't skate. It's like two separate worlds. They have to be a great athlete with great skills. And by the way, you also have to do something that so few humans in the world can do well enough. We just get on ice skates and do something else. Imagine any other sport. We had to throw them on something other than their feet in order for them to produce. So to me, that's what makes it so unique. And I really would love to learn how do they evaluate talent? What are the things they look for? Because I try and I have a hard time evaluating the mid-level hockey guys. The really good ones, it seems pretty easy, just like in the NFL. I can generally tell the guys that are going to go in the first round. But the guys in the fifth, sixth round in, in the NFL draft that become stars, that I get a feel for. I think I'm pretty good at that. In the NHL, I have no idea how guys that go in the mid-round that become stars. I don't even know what they're looking at. So to me, I'd love to learn what are their processes, especially because most of their scouting is not in America. It's Europe and Russia. So how do they do it? What, what's their plan for evaluating? So I'm hoping to encompass more of that. And I have reached out to a bunch of the people at the Cubs about meeting with them talking to them because I think the more people you hit up, the better chance you have. And I've learned a little bit on the basketball side, but a good friend of mine is the assistant coach at uh, Georgia tech basketball. So we've talked a lot about how they go about it, but that's such a hard one for the so few players. So mm. for them scouting isn't that difficult because not that it's not difficult. It's probably not the right way to say it. There are so few players to evaluate. Right. Because they're sort of like you in that they have elite academic standards and there's only you only have 15 guys per team. So you have a huge thing and you get this many players. Whereas football, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of hundred players on every major college roster, and about 70 guys when you get through with everything on every NFL and CFL roster. So there's a lot of bodies we have to look at. Russ, thank you so much for this time. This this was a lot of fun. This where, was a blast, man. Where can our listeners find and follow all the things that you're putting out? Best thing they can do is just follow me on Twitter at Russ Landy. And we are going to be starting, even though we do the SMWW uh, football GM and scouting course, which is sort of a great intro, we are about to launch in the next month a thing called Hub 
football scout camp, which Hub is right now a free agent camp that goes on about every six weeks where 60 players that are sort of pre-approved by a number of different people come out and work out for NFL and CFL scouts. We're then going to be adding a, make it a two-day scouting seminar. One position each time, anywhere from 10 to 50 guys can sign up, come out, we watch film the night before. I teach them about a position, teach them how to measure guys, how to give the wonderly, how to interview players, and teach them about how the next day, how to scout during a workout, how to watch players. So we're going to be starting that scout camp up uh, sometime in September. And uh, it's going to be really exciting to do in-person teaching. So I'm excited for that too. Hey, best of luck this fall. And and congratulations to y'all getting it back up and running uh, with the CFL. So good luck we this fall. We need that. <laughs> Thank you very much, man. Can't wait to watch Rice this year. I'm excited. Yes, sir. You have a great one. Thanks, Alex.